is the Investment Intelligence Podcast by Allianz Global Investors, sharing knowledge about all things investing. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, JP Vicente, Head of Institutional Marketing at Allianz Global Investors in North America. For this episode, my guest is John Mowry, the CIO for our value equity team based in Dallas, Texas. John and his team cover a wide array of value equity styles and regions. But for today's conversation, we'll be focusing on U.S. small cap stocks. And there's a good reason for that. In the volatile market that ensued after the COVID-19 pandemic, small caps have been hit hard, with the small cap value stocks in particular being hit the hardest. So we wanted to bring John in to talk to us about how he's looking at this particular dislocation, this current dislocation. So we covered a lot of ground, from valuations to dividend spreads, sectors and industries, opportunities, the mid-cap space, and much more. But a key takeaway from this conversation to me was how the behavior of small caps, unlike some other parts of the market, is not necessarily deviating from historical patterns. In other words, for U.S. small caps, this time is certainly not different. So without any further ado, let's get right to it. Hi, John, and thank you so very much for being here with us today. Before we get started, please tell us who you are and what you do here at Allianz Global Investors. Great. Thank you, JP. Um, so my name is John Mowry, and I'm the CIO for the Value Equity Team for Allianz Global Investors. And I have uh, been with the firm for uh, going on about 16 years now. So time keeps rolling. And you're speaking to us from Dallas today, correct? Correct. I'm in Dallas, and it's you know interesting here in Dallas. We're one of the you know first states to start to reopen, so there's a little activity out there, um, and the weather's getting warmer, so things are starting to feel a little more normal. But I think we're going to talk about some interesting topics today um, around all of this. Well, thanks, John, and welcome to the podcast. So let me first set the scene for our conversation. We're recording this on May 29th, 2020, and that's a little over three months since the U.S. equity markets reached record highs before the COVID-19 pandemic wreaked havoc on valuations, right? Volatility has been intense, of course. And as we record this, the market has recovered quite a lot from the lows that we saw in late March. But one thing has been a constant throughout this period. Small cap stocks have, in consonance with historical patterns, really, underperformed large cap stocks. And more specifically, small cap growth has outperformed small cap value. So, John, let me start by asking you, as a small cap value manager, what do you make of this? What's your assessment of the small cap market today? I would say that it is in line with history. Um, historically, you would expect small caps to underperform um, in a challenging market environment, particularly one that's headed into a recession. So, this is very much in line with history uh, when you look at what has happened to the smaller cap space. Alternatively, though, when the recovery uh, you know, comes, we typically see small caps leading. But in terms of the dislocations we're seeing in small caps, um, it is something that we would expect. Uh, it's painful, but it's also why investors earn that small cap premium over time. The risk premium uh, is there for a reason. You get the premium because of the risk associated. Over time, you can have a really interesting return profile in the small cap arena. And the last thing I'd say about the dislocation we've seen is, Yes, painful, but uh, necessary and ultimately allows for interesting dislocations among sectors and industries for opportunity for investors. Thanks, John. It's 
clear to me that small cap stocks, especially those that are operating in the sectors and industries that are most impacted by COVID-19 are certainly taking the brunt, right? Bearing the brunt of the sell-off in the space. And But it's conventional wisdom to say today that unlike the Great Recession, you know, the equity sell-off today is different. That makes sense to me, you know, when I'm looking at, you know, investors, you know, rotating into more, call it perennial growth kind of stocks, especially large cap tech, et cetera. But how about small caps when you compare it to history? Is this really different for that asset class this time or is it not? I would say that it's actually not different. Um, there are differences today, but for small cap value, it's, it's not different. Um, you know, if you look at what occurred in the first quarter, the Russell 2000 value was down, uh, you know, around 35% or so in the first quarter. Uh, so that's a pretty uh, drastic sell off. Uh, that's similar to what we saw over a two quarter period in the fourth quarter of 08 and the first quarter of 09. So we saw a similar magnitude there. The difference, though, is that you've seen uh, large cap technology stocks, which make up a pretty significant portion of the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. uh, those have really powered the market higher. And those have been definitely the places that investors have flocked to. So you've exacerbated this growth value trade in the near term with COVID. But what is occurring in the small cap space is very much in line with history. And that, I believe, presents an interesting opportunity. You would think the S&P is pretty broad-based. But actually, when you pull it back, it's much more like a large cap growth index today than it has been in many years. And there are similarities to 2000, although I would argue that this is not like 2000, because in 2000, you had a lot of non-earning technology stocks. Today, you have technology stocks that do earn money. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, the valuation discrepancies are the same. So what's really interesting to me is valuations tell an interesting story. You're actually paying... Uh, when you look at it on a dollar for dollar basis, the valuation for a dollar of earnings, you're paying that same spread that you were uh, 15 years ago between the asset classes. Thanks, John. That's a really interesting kind of counterintuitive argument, actually. But let me dig deeper into into this particular point. What are the the key metrics that you're looking at these days to to back up the assumption that this time is not different for small caps? One of the things that I like to look at is simply the dividend yield of the S&P 500 relative to the 10-year bond yield. And I like to look at that spread as a function of time. And what we're seeing is the widest spread between those two yields, the dividend yield on the S&P and the yield on the 10-year bond. That's the widest since 2008. Um, it's actually wider than it was in 2008. Mm -hmm. And that signaled a really interesting time for investors to step into the equity market. And this is where it gets a little bit scary because it's like, well, there's a lot of uncertainty at, you know, if you go back to 08 and 09, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of similarities and a lot of uncertainty. But the reality is the investors that were able to allocate capital to equities at that time enjoyed a pretty fascinating run and an interesting way to compound. When you dig deeper, JP, and look at, okay, Equities look cheap. The dividend yield on the S&P to the 10-year, that is wide. The dividend yield on the small cap value index is even wider than it was yeah. in 2008. So are you concerned that 
that small versus large cap dividend yield spread is going to come down as, you know, let's say the effects of COVID-19 on balance sheets become more apparent? I like to, you know, look back at history. And, you know, if you look at the small cap dividend payers over time, and this is going back to 1980, the small cap dividend payers um, have had a 13.7% annualized return. Um, and they've had a standard deviation of 16.4. If you look at the non-dividend payers of the small cap, they've had a 6.5% return over that same period, and they've had a 24.9% standard deviation. So the dividend payers have outperformed the non-dividend payers as well as the market with lower variability of return. And that is through a lot of challenging periods. That's going through the 90s. That's going through 2008. That's going through 9-11. So we, we will see some dividend pressure, um, and that's to be expected. But the reality is the dividend pressure is going to come in areas that were already under pressure. In fact, year to date, if you look at the dividend cuts or elimination within the small cap arena, roughly 50% is within consumer discretionary. That's to be expected, and quite frankly, some of the retail stocks and apparel stocks that are eliminating dividends probably shouldn't have been paying those dividends in the first place to be mm-hmm. Um So I, I think that, that if I look at the total universe, I think that the dividend elimination is a nice headline. But ultimately, if you look at the data, the companies that pay these dividends, grow these dividends, they will continue to do so. And therefore, I think, I think the historical metric very much stands. Because you could have made the same argument in 08 that all these companies were going to eliminate their dividends. And the fact is, they didn't. So, so, John, talk to me about what do you think investors should look at today when thinking or considering investing in the space? You know, something that might differentiate, you know, my view on uh, value equities relative to maybe some other traditional value managers is I actually think that income statement strength is um, as important, if not more important, than balance sheet strength. The reality is there's lots of companies out there with good balance sheets, quote unquote, that have a deteriorating business. And that's not a recipe, in my opinion, for reversion. Something really fascinating that actually I read just this past week, JP, mm-hmm. the, the small cap banks have taken out greater provisions in the first quarter of 2020 than they did in 2008. So the banks have already said, hey, we think this, is, this could be worse which is really interesting because if it's not worse, you could see those uh, start to get reversed back through and the earnings increase. So that's a very interesting dynamic we're seeing. So there's a lot of healthy companies out there in the small cap arena. They lived through a way. They know how to take care of their balance sheet, their income statement. And I think that investors need to very much focus not just on balance sheet stability, but also income statement stability. And there are companies that are actually raising their dividends, growing their margins, and they're going to do actually just fine through this crisis, the issue is that there's multiple compression because of fear. The, the lesson that I'm getting here as we talk about this is that risk premium remains and it's out there to be reaped. But I wanted to spend a little bit more time on this dichotomy, perhaps between the small cap growth part of the market and the small cap value part of the market. So we mentioned earlier growth has been outperforming value for a while. And and that even precedes the COVID-19 pandemic, right? In fact, I guess when we look at value stocks, they've been underperforming for for quite some time, a decade or so. So so talk to me, persuade me a little bit about what's giving you confidence today 
right, about this, that this much awaited value cycle could be around the corner. There's really no evidence for a single asset class outperforming in perpetuity. Um, I haven't seen that, whether it's value or growth. And the value premium is well documented over time. And the fact that it hasn't worked the last five, six, seven years, that creates the opportunity. Um, you're not always going to be able to make uh, the, the, the easiest arguments on why that would come back. There were a lot of arguments why growth would keep working in the late 90s. Uh, there were also a lot of arguments why value would keep working in the uh, you know mid to late 2000s. In fact, I remember going into many meetings and clients would would basically say, "Why would I allocate to growth? Uh, you know, value is just clearly the place to be." Mm-hmm. On top of that, um, you know, again going back to history, the last time we saw yield spreads between uh, the Russell 2000 value and the 10-year dividend yield, or even the S&P dividend yield this wide, the Russell 2000 value, um, going back to March of 2009, outperformed the S&P by over 50%. That's a pretty significant um, amount of alpha that was generated in the small cap value arena. And again, that makes perfect sense when you think about what's in the small cap value index. It's financials. It's Mm -hmm. industrials. It's discretionary names. These are tied to the consumer. They're tied to sentiment. They're tied to small businesses. What's been the most impacted by COVID? It's small business. It's why it sold off the hardest. Let's let's spend a little bit more time on that because I wanted to talk about sectors. So as you mentioned, so industrials, industrials, financials, um, they make up you know a large chunk of the of the value benchmark, right? Correct. So um, so those are the sectors that have been pretty battered, as you mentioned. So explain to me how you're looking at sector weights. Not all industries and sectors are going to be as attractive. In fact, I think within discretionary, particularly, um, there's going to be a lot of opportunity, but there's going to be a lot of value traps. I think certain areas within leisure are going to be very challenged. Um, I think the restaurant industry is going to be challenged. Um, But there are some really interesting companies in the small cap arena. And I would argue that many fall within um, some of the P&C areas within the small cap arena. There are, for instance, many companies that have been beaten up in that arena because uh, folks are worried about the payments they have to make related to COVID. And mm-hmm. we're seeing valuation discounts, JP, back to at or below 2009 levels. And if you picked up shares of these companies back in those periods, the uh, future returns were pretty astonishing. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities there. The other piece I would say, which is not quite as intuitive, mm-hmm. is there's a healthy chunk within the small cap value arena within REITs and utilities. These areas don't exist in the uh, you know growth indices. REITs and utilities are going to fare, in my opinion, quite well because of the interest rate environment around the world. We have very low rates. There's a need for yield. And then you tack on a growth rate. And so you step back and you think, how are you going to solve for the yield equation that everyone has to uh, think about and solve when they think about their liabilities? If you can get a 3% dividend yield with growth on it, at attractive valuations, um, it's a really interesting way to meet future obligations. So, John, this is this is a really interesting point that you make. So, let me delve a little bit deeper into the sectors and specific industries industries that you're talking about, because I would say there's a competing argument out there that would say that 
we've been all working from home and perhaps, you know, the REITs sector that you mentioned earlier could be a little bit more affected by it as companies reduce their uh, footage or, you know, square footage, uh, their space in, 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 in commercial real estate. I mean, how are you reconciling these two arguments uh, today when you're thinking about investing? Yeah, I think the key is, is selectivity. Um, when I look at the REIT space, there are going to be areas that are more challenged. Uh, many of the retail REITs, uh, those are going to have some challenges. You know, what I think is interesting is to think about, well, what are the opportunities within the REIT space? What areas are really benefiting? Um, mm-hmm. You know, areas like data centers, uh, those are massive beneficiaries. Those are within the small cap uh, arena. Uh, those companies are going to uh, really uh, continue to have massive tailwinds because of COVID. They already had massive tailwinds prior to this because of the need for cloud storage. Uh, you can look at a very uh, cool, there's an aerial map of Data Center Alley outside of uh, DC. And looking at that from 1980 to present, it's mind-boggling. So data centers are beneficiaries. Industrial REITs are going to be beneficiaries. Um, and then you know, there, there are other areas within uh, the, the REIT space. You know, even within, within some office area, there are going to be people that, you know, we're not going to quit working from offices. And mm-hmm. so there are going to be some places for value. But I think this is really the argument why, you know, you need to think about um, being selective as opposed to owning a broad basket, because there mm-hmm. are going to be some, some REITs that are going to be hit hard. John, let me talk a little bit about risks. So what, what are the risks that you see to your outlook? Is, there, is that a, a second wave of infections, a prolonged recession? What's keeping you awake at night, so to speak? You know, what's interesting to me is that the market, the market sold off very quickly. And a lot of people were surprised. You know, we were limit down. You know, it was a pretty scary time. But the market was discounting things very quickly before it actually was happening in the economy. Uh, mm-hmm. Similarly, the market has rebounded pretty sharply uh, in the first, or excuse me, in the second quarter, because it discounted that things looked better, and that's not coming true. So the markets are ahead of what's happening. The markets are very smart, and so mm-hmm. what I would say is that you know the markets are optimistic here. I think that there is room for a pause, particularly if um, you know a vaccine is does not come at the speed at which you know uh, you know many participants think it, it should. So I think there is risk of that, but the reality is, and you know, this is where I take a long-term view, it it doesn't matter. And I don't mean that to to sound uh, rude or arrogant in any way, but ultimately, if you look at 08, the fourth quarter of 08 got scary, then there was a big bounce, and then then we saw another scary moment in the first quarter of 09. Mm -hmm. The reality is you need to be allocating now. Now's the opportunity, and if we get a 10% correction, it's fine. And the reason it's fine is because the Fed has stepped in and they said, we will support the system. They, they dropped rates, they're printing money, and they're buying back, they're, and they're buying corporate debt now. So they've mm-hmm. made it very clear, we will support the system. We will not let it fail under any circumstances. So given that uh, emotions are high uh, and valuations are quite low, we think that in- investors uh, should consider taking risk. And those that are willing to take risk and have that appetite, uh, we believe there's an interesting return profile that could be associated with that. And that would be, again, very much in line with what we've seen historically when investors were willing to add risk when valuations were low and emotions were high. 
That's interesting. So what are you looking at right now that you feel like sometimes could speed up the process or, you know, indicate that this particular trend, not only this upward trend that is, uh, not only could continue, but perhaps even gain more steam? This is going to be a very interesting earnings season and there's going to be a lot of winners and there's going to be a lot of losers. And so I think that that is going to be a critical piece of understanding who is best positioned. So there's going to be a lot of comparative analysis because, you know, within, you know, take financials or take restaurants, there are going to be those that actually gain market share, that actually are able to grow their businesses through this. And the reality is this is a, a painful part of recessions, but recessions actually are a healthy part of the business cycle. It's a natural reshuffling of the economy to allow it to get more efficient and grind higher. So there's going to be a lot of uh, winners coming out of this, actually. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's going to be room for consolidation. Um, you know, there will be assets that get bought out. There will be deals that will get done. Interest rates are at record low levels. There's going to be very favorable ways to issue uh, debt to do some interesting deals. So I think that's part of it. But I think the other thing um, is sentiment. Um, and it's something that, you know, I think it's overlooked. I mean, there is still a lot of fear. If you had stepped into the market on March 23rd, that's scary. But you're up, you know, some of these stocks are up 100%. So you've seen massive recovery in some, in some securities already. And so what I would say is a big part of this is you have to go by the numbers, not the narrative. And that's a big belief of mine personally. The numbers, let the numbers tell you the story and don't follow the narrative. Don't follow the CNBC narrative. Don't follow the narrative from your neighbor. Don't follow the narrative of looking out your window and saying, I, you know, planes aren't going to fly again. You have to follow the data. And the data is in many parts of the small cap arena, still very healthy. So I wanted to take the opportunity to pick your brain a little bit about the mid cap market as well. Um, what are your thoughts in that space? Is that similar to small cap or do you see things kind of differently in that, uh, in that arena? We do think very highly of the mid cap space. It's kind of a neglected area. Um, a lot of investors think, hey, I'll allocate to small caps and large caps and I don't need mid caps. Um, historically, that's been a mistake, actually. If you look at mid-caps over time, they provided a very uh, interesting risk-adjusted return over time. And in fact, the mid-cap value space was the single best performing asset class coming out of the 2009 bottom. It beat everything. And so it's a very interesting group of companies. And you step back and it makes sense, once again, because the value arena would have been more beaten up going through a recession. So having more upside coming out. Um, and the mid cap value companies, you know, they're on their way to kind of becoming the next generation of leaders. It's weeded out those companies that aren't going to do as well. Um, so it's a very interesting group of companies. And something else I would say about the mid cap value index, which is particularly unique is 25% of that index is in REITs, utilities and staples. Mm -hmm. Those those areas are going to disproportionately benefit, in my opinion, with the interest rate environment. I mean, you just saw the UK issue negative yielding bonds. I mean, that is incredible. So record low rates are here to stay. And I think that the mid-cap value space is, is, is well positioned to capitalize on that because of the unique attributes within that arena. Thank you, John. I, I, as I, I also wanted to talk to you about deploying both small and mid-cap value stocks to, to portfolios, both in the institutional arena and, and the retail arena. Um, do you think that investors should rebalance back to the original strategic asset allocation plans at this point? 
Or do you think that given everything that we've talked so far in terms of the valuations and, and the dislocations in the market, this is the right time for a more tactical overweight to small caps and perhaps mid caps? So again, I like to look at market history. Um, you know, I have a very simple belief that if you don't rebalance your portfolio, the market will for you. Um, so you have to be disciplined about rebalancing. When I look at the data, JP, it is stacked on the side of value. Historically, when you've seen the dislocations occur to the degree they have, particularly in the value arena, value led. And so that is, uh, you know, when I look at that, yes, I, I think it's prudent to allocate to value and prudent to be overweight. Now, that being said, and this is where, you know, I take maybe a slightly different view than some other, uh, you know, value managers. Look, I still think you should be allocated to growth. I think growth's a great space. But at the margin, um, given the dislocations, I think that, you know, investors would be wise to say, okay, you know, what's the narrative? The narrative is growth will beat in perpetuity. Um, and when I look at the valuation discount, it's like, you know, it's kind of the numbers versus the narrative. It's like the narrative is good. But when I look at the numbers, it says something different. And so we think it's an interesting time for investors to revisit their allocations you know, follow the data. That that seems to be a, a good place also to sort of uh, end our conversation here, but I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a great talk about small caps and uh, small cap value stocks and mid cap stocks. But John, we've, us, uh, we've also uh, created a, a tradition here that we end the podcast with a cultural recommendation. And, and this could be a, a book you're reading, you know, a movie, uh, music that you're listening to, anything that's been stimulating you from an intellectual perspective or an entertainment perspective. So when you're not looking at small and mid cap stocks, what, what is it that, uh, that, that you're doing? <laughs> well, so I, I usually would have a different answer to this question, but because, uh, we, uh, you know, spent so much time at home, I will say that I'm now an expert in all the, uh, Disney movies because my <laughs> children have uh, been watching these on replay and singing the songs and dancing. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that they will have me get up there and dance to some of the songs with them. So I know all the Disney movies very well at this point, and that may not be the most cultural recommendation, but, 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 but uh, that, that is where that, that, that has taken a lot of my mind share the last, uh, you know, when I'm not working on investments and portfolios, that's where my uh, mind share has been yeah, Disney with my children. That's great. We, we, we've all been there, you know, and to be honest, you know, HBO Max, which launched just yesterday, you know, has a complete, you know, like section there that has all the Looney Tunes uh, cartoons as well. So if you're, you get tired of the Disney stuff, you can move on to, to the other stuff. Like there's Bugs Bunny from the very beginning. So it's actually like, like some classic stuff. So if you like that or your kids I, like, I like it, be it. Fun. I like it. Yes. So my cultural recommendation today is a compilation album that came out in 2019 called The Legendary Prestige Quintet Sessions. And that, that is, you know, it sort of brings together that incredible, like remarkable music that Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Red Garland, Paul Chambers, and Philly Joe Jones, you know, one of my favorite jazz drummers of all time created, you know, in an incredibly period, short period of time that was in the middle of the last century. And the quintet recorded five albums, actually, Miles, Cooking, Relaxing, Working, and Steaming. And this happened in rapid succession in 1955 and 1956. So altogether, the recording sessions lasted for like three days, resulting in five of the most or 
albums in jazz history, in my view. And, and the reason why he ended up doing this is because he was, Miles Davis was under contract with Prestige at the time, but he wanted to move to Columbia Records. But he couldn't do that until he fulfilled his contract with Prestige. And I think it, I believe, called for four more albums. So he had already recorded Miles. So he brought the quintet to the studio and knocked out all four albums in just a few days. So he could just go ahead and, and move on. So if you like jazz, this is a, a, a great compilation and you're going to have more than three hours worth of great music for you. Mm, All right. So, I like so that. Thank- Great. So thank you, John. Thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you all so very much for listening. Thank you again, John, and stay safe, everyone. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on May 29, 2020. Investing involves risk. The value of an investment and the income from it will fluctuate and investors may not get back the principal invested. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. This is a marketing communication. It is for informational purposes only. The information contained in this recording does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security and shall not be deemed an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. The views and opinions expressed herein, which are subject to change without notice, are those of the issuer or its affiliated companies at the time of publication. Certain data referenced are derived from various sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy or completeness of the data is not guaranteed and no liability is assumed for any direct or consequential losses arising from their use. The duplication, publication, extraction, or transmission of the contents, irrespective of the form, is not permitted. This recording has not been reviewed by any regulatory authorities. In mainland China, it is used only as supporting material to the offshore investment products offered by commercial banks under the Qualified Domestic Institutional Investor Scheme pursuant to applicable rules and regulations. This recording is being distributed by Allianz Global Investors and its affiliates. For a complete list of affiliated entities, please visit AllianzGI.com.